everyone and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I am your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay. And um, before we get started, I always like to let our new listeners know who we are and kind of what we do. Um, Bottom line, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And um, I, I initiated this, uh, this business due to my own journey with my very own mother uh, who had dementia for 30 years. And I just, uh, I got really um, upset and felt very isolated that I didn't know where services, products, and tools were. And I thought there's got to be a way to be able to lift everyone's voice and to be able to share all of the knowledge there is around the world. And so here on Alzheimer's Speaks, we interview people that have dementia. We interview advocates, family members, um, business professionals. We've had doctors and researchers on, uh, movie directors, singers, songwriters, authors, you name it. We're open to everyone's voice um, because we're a team and we need to be able to share that knowledge. And we truly believe that by Um, joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations like we do here on Alzheimer's Speaks that we're going to be able to remove a lot of the stigma attached to the disease and help people uh, live purpose-filled lives. Let them not feel so isolated and, and know that there is a common ground and a common bond between those dealing with the disease. At our core, we also believe that collaboration is the only way that we're going to win this battle against dementia. And I know it's working thanks to each and every one of you. You see, your likes, your clicks, and your shares um, have gotten us acknowledged as the number one influencer online regarding Alzheimer's, according to Share Karen Dr. Oz. And we were also recognized by Maria Schreiber as an architect of change um, for humanity. And the only way that happened was through all of you. Um, So I encourage you to continue to share our information with your spheres of influence. If that's your LinkedIn colleagues, if it's your Facebook friends, if it's your Twitter tribe or your Pinterest peeps, um, the more information we can share out there publicly Um, to people in need, the easier their life is going to be. And, you know, everybody um, has uh, spheres of influence with people in it that are dealing with dementia, but you don't know because they're not even comfortable telling us. And so we have to have these conversations. And by throwing more information out there, it's going to ease the process. And I'm speaking from experience. It eases the process and opens the door to have a conversation. So if you're listening today and you think you have a story to share, please contact me. You can go to alzheimerspeaks.com. Um, in the upper right-hand corner, there's a big button that says contact. Um, and, you know, give me a call, shoot me an email um, are the best ways uh, to reach me. And, um, and we'll see if maybe you can be our next guest on the show. 
I also want to uh, give a shout out to the Call Alert Center. They also have the Caregiver um, Alert Center, which is just a fantastic way to protect a loved one who is dealing uh, with potential wandering. And, um, you know, go ahead and check them out. You can find a big button to access them on our on our homepage at Alzheimer's Speaks. And then I would be amiss if I didn't invite you all to join us November 11th through the 18th for our Bahamas cruise. We're heading to the Caribbean um, for seven days, and it's going to be a dementia-friendly cruise and symposium. And we still have some openings in our group, and we'd love for you to join us um, There'll be plenty of time to relax and rejuvenate, Um, but in the symposium, I have um, four brilliant people who are all diagnosed with dementia who will be sharing their uh, stories and their insights, along with Cindy Lazinski, who's heading up a dementia-friendly city in um, Colorado, and Becky Watson, who is with... um, who is a music therapist. And we're also going to be having somebody from the um, American Senior Magazine join us as well. And we're still formulating information on that. Last, before I get into the show, I just want to um, point out on our website, you can also download some helpful tips when dealing with dementia. Uh, so just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and again, and you can go ahead and access that. Now, today we are going to have a really interesting conversation about living with dying. And I'm so excited. We've got two authors with us, uh, Yana Beachman and Katie or- Orlip. Um, and Katie is a nurse and a social worker. And th- these two gals became friends and neighbors. And then everything really changed when Yana's 90-year-old father was told that he had prostate cancer and it had spread to his bones. And at that moment, Yana became his caregiver while Katie became his hospice um, social worker. And together, these two amazing women women, um, journeyed through this really emotional time and became even closer. They shared a lot of their insights um, to end-of-life care in this book called Living with Dying. And um, it's a really easy-to-use guide for care partners, which gives insights, you know, how to have a conversation about dying and navigating the emotional and spiritual journey of death. And um, working with other family members, working with hospice, and that one kind of forbidden thing that none of us do very well is self-care. And so I'm, like I said, I'm really excited to have this conversation with these two women today. So, so welcome, Yana. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Lori, for having us on the show. Well, good. And Katie, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic, and I'm also so excited to be here with you, Laurie. Talk well, about our book. Yeah, we. Well, <laughs> your your book is really it's laid out so nicely, and it's you know the print is big enough, the contrast is good, um, you know, and it's just it's designed really easy. I think it's going to turn into uh, people's Bible for care. Um, because it's one of those things that you're not just going to read once, you're going to go back and keep uh-huh. referencing it, 
uh, which I think is fantastic. So I'm going to start out with um, my first question, and I'm going to um, throw this one actually to Yana and talk about um, your emotions when you found out, you know, that your your dad was terminal. How did that how did how did that impact you? Um, you know, he he. I'm trying to think. It was, it was. You know, I was already a care partner with for him. Um, it it kind of uh, what was happening at that moment was he was having terrible pain. So the way it impacted me um, at, at the time was he was just his bones that we knew he had uh, it gone to his bones because of the pain, and that was horrible. So I was in a really frantic state, you know, trying to get him pain relief, running from doctor to doctor, trying to get him up on a, you know, x-ray machine or a MRI machine. So when he finally got the, you know, diagnosis, it was kind of, I mean, it's a weird thing to say, but it was a little bit of relief because immediately we went to hospice and our whole life changed. Mm -hmm. You know, Katie came in, she was our social worker and he he got he got instant pain relief, and um, it just felt like ah, uh, we've kind of we we were we were starting a new journey. It didn't feel like it's over. We felt like we were on a a different journey. That's mm-hmm. how I felt. It wasn't it was it, it wasn't a horrible. I mean, it it is a grief, but um, we were at least we were all together and it, we, we kind of embraced it together. So it was a new adventure, I guess I should say. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, uh, you know, when you get that, that answer to what's going on, when you've been wondering, um, I, I think even when people get diagnosed with dementia, you know, they say <laughs> they're, they're thrilled to have it, have a name put to it. Instead of thinking right. that they're crazy, that, you know, this really isn't happening or people aren't understanding. And, uh, you know, you can come up with some type of plan. And so I, th- I think there is um, a gift in, in diagnosis, um, no matter what that diagnosis is, at least it's an, it's an answer and, and helps you t- to be able to develop a plan to, to move forward with that. Um, so, um, Katie, let me ask you this. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about hospice? And, and I want you to, to kind of tell people the difference between hospice and palliative care, because I think, it, I just don't think people understand, um, to be honest. And, and then we can kind of go on into what happens to the body and how is that affected during the process. Okay, sure. Well, um, hospice care is a type of palliative care. Palliative care is comfort care. So really, anyone could be receiving comfort care at any time in their um, disease or condition. Someone could be having chemotherapy and even, even uh, you know, on a road to being cured and have palliative care. But hospice care is specifically for end stage of life. Um, it is also comfort care, but hospice care is specifically for people who have approximately six months or less to live, and they are no longer seeking curative treatment like chemo or radiation or surgery. They're focusing on quality of life and comfort. Most of these people have have hospice care in their own homes, which is usually their first choice. Um, 
whereas palliative care is usually done at a medical center or doctor's office during a hospital stay, there are some home care palliative care programs now, uh, but it, it tends to be still more um, in clinics and hospitals where they meet with a special team, the patients meet with a special team to focus on controlling their symptoms. Mm -hmm. So hospice is really more specifically end-of-life palliative care. Okay. And and typically with that, you're giving up the right for future treatment, and Mm -hmm. and it really is more about pain and comfort control. Is that correct? Yes, um, the treatment's related to your, quote, terminal diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So, of course, if you break your leg or if you have a problem that's not related, you could have those things taken care of and go to the hospital. But um, for people, let's, you know, since we're talking about Alzheimer's and dementia, when we have someone on hospice who have that diagnosis and stage Alzheimer's, the families have usually decided at this point that they do not want their loved one to be resuscitated. They don't want um, feeding tubes. Um, They don't want aggressive antibiotics uh, to be hospitalized in the hospital for IV antibiotics. These things are very distressing to to people, especially, you know, with Alzheimer's and dementia. And so they generally want to keep their loved ones at home or wherever they're living and not do all of these aggressive, life-prolonging treatments any longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know when well, my dad had brain cancer, and we had to make that decision, and he mm-hmm. had pneumonia, and they said, well, we can give mm-hmm. him a shot for his pneumonia. My whole family started jumping up and down going, yeah, yeah, give it to him, give it to him, and I just said no. Yeah. And everyone looked mm-hmm. at me like, where'd you come from? What are you talking about? <laughs> and I just said- yeah, pneumonia. Yeah. Right. And I said, this yeah. is not going to make dad any better. You know, it's going to get rid yeah. of the pneumonia, but he's not going to get up and walk and talk. And mm-hmm. and be the dad you thought, you know, and then hospice said, yeah, she's right. And, you know, and then mm-hmm. everyone thought about it and we decided not to um, at that point, you know, because he was mm-hmm. um, bedridden and and things. And that wasn't um, what he would want, um, right. you know, and same with my mom right. towards the end of life with oh. her. You know, we made the same mm-hmm. same decision, but we had a we had a difficult time with the nursing home, the night um uh, the night nurse abiding by the hospice plan, and that was that was a little irritating um, for us. And, and yeah, we I, see that at facilities sometimes. Um, we had a patient recently um, who couldn't feed herself, and her husband did not want them to keep feeding her because she had said to him, "I don't when I can't feed myself. I do not want anyone to feed me." Um, but so there was some difficulty with the caregivers accepting that because they still wanted to feed her, even though she was starting to have difficulty swallowing. So there are issues like that that come up yeah. um, when people are not at home that really need to be clarified earlier on to make it easier when the time comes. Yeah, and, and this was um, well-known and communicated, mm-hmm. and it was just blocked, and it was very, very frustrating from a family yeah. level. I mean, even with they were giving her oxygen and it wasn't, you know, hospice said it's not appropriate at this point. Mm-hmm. And then um, we thought that that had gotten taken care of. And then in the morning, the the morning nurse called me and said, I, I'm, I, I want to talk to you about this oxygen. You know, we don't think it's appropriate. In fact, it's cutting into her face, you know, and I'm just like, yeah. that was supposed to have been, you know, done with last night. And uh-huh. she said, oh, I'm just so sorry. And and it was just a lot of, um, 
It was just, it was too bad. So, you know, as a family no. member, you do have to advocate and, and stand up and, and communicate mm-hmm. strongly with those things. Well, um, do you feel like, do you feel like now that people are getting, I mean, now that people are actually actively having a discussion about how they want to die and that maybe those nurses that right now are rogue nurses running off and doing their own thing and not, you know, following the patient's request might be more likely to follow it now. I mean, have you noticed any change since since you know, your mom's I, death. Um, I, I, that's a tough one. It's a tough one because I think that there are, you know, people are trained in a certain mode, and I really think mm-hmm. that was part of it. And and I think it's really up to those communities and facilities to say no. This this is not, you know. I think they need to do some retraining. I guess is what I'm saying. And um, yeah. you know, I had to leave town, and I was comfortable leaving town because my mom had told me that I wasn't going to be there when she died and I needed to continue my hmm. work and stuff. And, and so I put a note on the wall and, Oh, you can't put a note on the wall. And I'm like, I will put a note on the wall and that note is going to stay on that damn wall until you do what you're supposed to do, you know? And so if you don't want the note on the wall, then follow our wishes, you know, that are very clear. And so it was like, it was funny. Like it was like, that was one of their rules. And it's like, that's not cutting yeah. it with this family. <laughs> I think I think end of life education is really lacking and dying process. And people they take the the person's O2 sat. They're they're trained to take the person's O2 Mm -hmm. reading. And if it's below a certain, you know, if it's below 90, they're supposed to put oxygen on. But when someone is dying, that is not what you do. And I think people like Yana said and what you said, Lori. I think there is. I go into these facilities all the time. And they're always training new caregivers. They have high turnover, and they don't train them in the dying process or end-of-life care. It's not really part of their training. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's something that I hope this book will be used for. Um, but I'm, I'm constantly having to tell people, caregivers, that, no, this is not what you do when someone is dying. You mm-hmm. don't, you know, try to make them eat. You don't try to, you don't put oxygen on them. Um, but it's, a, it's kind of an ongoing battle, I find. Yeah, yeah, it it is. And that's why I just, I love that you've written this book. I mean, um, as you know, I deal with with people who are diagnosed with dementia and their families. And this mm-hmm. is this is a conversation that needs to be had. And a lot mm-hmm. of times, it's the person diagnosed that wants to have the conversation and the family doesn't want to. And, you know, right. they, they really want their wishes known. And, you know, death um, shouldn't be any scarier than birth. You know, there's no mm-hmm. rule, there's mm-hmm. no rules at either end, and there's no real guidebook with this. Um, and it's all about knowing that you weren't just never ever going to be totally prepared. You know, and that's true. And, and no, well, ma- you know what? What mm-hmm. What's interesting, Lori? Now that you're saying that, um, um, I, I had the great great benefit of feeling really prepared my whole family because of Katie mm-hmm. and we used to be neighbor, when we were neighbors she would come home and say today was a great guest mm-hmm. and you know and then I'd say what is that and so she'd explain to me you know that it's uh, she, you know patients dying the way they want and and she would be really specific about the death and and so when my father was diagnosed and uh, you know with uh, with six months to live Katie came on and she really basically was our guide or Sherpa through 
his last six months. And we weren't afraid because, I mean, we, and our book tells this, what she told me is, you know, what happens to the body? What happens to the brain? What happens to, you know, whether they want to eat when they stop eating, don't try to force them to eat. That's the, that's the body doing its work. And, Mm -hmm. and even in the last um, days with my father, she would talk me through what's going on with his body. And even in the last hours, you know, she was pointing out, see the rash that, you know, gathers around the organs. And, and she was saying, you know, she, she said, that means he's actively dying. And she was talking to him saying, you're doing a great job, Charlie. And she was telling my mom and I what a good job. And we're all in there marveling at the wonder of the body being able to send itself off without or, you know, he wasn't in pain and he was, you know, asleep by then, but, and, you know, breathing um, heavily, but, but he was, it, it was, I wasn't afraid. And as we approached the, when he was conscious, he wasn't afraid mm-hmm. because of knowing so much about it and being guided through the whole process that none of this is like you said, Katie, to the other day, you said, none of it is, it's all normal. It's not unusual. So it's nice to know that the things that your body's doing or your patients or loved ones body is doing is, is the right thing. It's exactly what it's supposed to do. Yeah. So. And I, I guess when I was saying that you're not prepared is, you know, to me, it's really about a letting go process and, you know, oh, you're, you're not going to yeah. be able to control when this happens or how this happens. Cause it, you know, it just, um, there isn't there to me. And again, maybe I'm wrong. There isn't a, a total guidebook. I, I think your book guides people in terms of, um, expectations and process and really helps them let go. Cause I, to me, one of the, the biggest things that I see people trying to do is control it or stop it, um, mm-hmm. or, de- or deny it. And it sounds like, um, Yana, where you were at was you were just comfortable with it, that this is normal. You were educated that, and, and how we don't think this is normal amazes me because we know we're not going to live forever. Um, but it's that, it's that strong denial that we have. Um, and, and, you know, we'd like to avoid things that are uncomfortable and yet it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. uncomfortable. We're the ones making it uncomfortable. Um, to me, it's yeah, the more we talk about it, the more we talk about it, the more we learn about anything, it becomes less scary. And, um, but, but there, of course, there is certain uncertainty. There's an uncertainty about our emotions. And I, think, I found that people, um, you know, they've been taking care, care of their lovers with dementia or Alzheimer's for a long period of time. And they kept, they, they say to me, this, this, they say to me a lot, I thought I was ready. You know, I've been losing him or her for years and years, and I thought I was ready. Mm-hmm. But, the, but when the person actually dies, we're never ready to lose a loved one. Mm-hmm. And I think people are surprised at the grief they have, even though they've been expecting this for years and years, that the grief is something that they don't expect. Mm-hmm. That, that, that sort of that the, the impact that it has on them emotionally, even though they've been expecting it. Yeah. Oh, that's a that's a great way to yeah. great way to put it, Katie. Why don't you talk to us mm-hmm. about um, what happens to the body in the last months and weeks and days of life? Well, of course it varies, but there's but this is all very general, and it can happen at different times. But usually, over the last you know the last few months of life, 
the person might start withdrawing from, from life, so their circle becomes smaller and smaller. For example, maybe they used to watch the news every morning and read the newspaper, so that they just stop doing that. And they don't want to see their friends so much anymore. They, they want to stop. They start, stop going out. And they just have less energy. Um, so the, and so they turn inward. They may become quieter, um, not want to talk even to their loved ones as much. Sometimes there's some reminiscing. People start talking about their lives, mm-hmm. um, life review, um, reaching out to people, you know, calling people. Um, and then, and physically, their bodies are getting losing energy, so they're they're sleeping more. Maybe starting with a nap in the daytime, then maybe two naps. Definitely, appetite decreases, so they'll start refusing to eat certain foods. Usually, meat first, then vegetables. Soft foods like yogurt and puddings, and maybe cold fruit, are usually what what they eat um, later. You know, or drinking shakes. But the, the appetite really decreases. Um, so that that's kind of, and then as it gets down to weeks, that just happens more and more. Sleeping more, less energy, um, may start having some difficulty swallowing. People with Alzheimer's and dementia generally start having difficulty swallowing earlier on, because that's more of a neurological um, thing than than just getting very weak at the very end of life. Mm-hmm. So with Alzheimer's, yeah, the, the, the weight loss and decrease of eating is pretty significant and unable to control their bowels, um, losing the ability to walk. And um, But with all, with all people who are dying, at the very end, the last few days and hours are, become more similar in that one day the person just cannot get out of bed anymore. They, they just have no energy. The energy, their bodies are using all the energy they have just to breathe and just to talk. Mm-hmm. So that's why they end up not eating at all. Their bodies cannot digest the food anymore. And if they feel pressure to eat and force themselves to eat, usually they end up feeling bloated, nauseated. Um, their bodies just cannot digest the food anymore. Mm-hmm. And and then talking really decreases to where they can't talk anymore because, again, they don't have the energy to talk mm-hmm. and they can't even process what they're saying anymore. They become kind of confused, almost in a different world, almost like they have one foot in both worlds. Mm-hmm. And so as they eat and drink less, the body becomes dehydrated, which when you're dying is not a bad thing. That is something that people, there's a big misunderstanding about. Mm-hmm. Um, as they become dehydrated, they get more sleepy, drowsy, the body releases endorphins. And usually the people, as they become sedated, they actually, um, there can be a mild euphoria uh, with that. So that's why we don't want to correct dehydration at this point with IV fluids, because at this point, we're just going against the natural dying process. Mm-hmm. And usually the last few days of life, people are sleeping. Um, they can still hear. The hearing is the last sense to go. So it's, it's important to still talk. Talk to the your loved one and say whatever you need to say. And then there's a lot of changes with breathing at the very end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that we, could, we can control symptoms like breathing, restlessness. If there's pain, we can control them with medications that can be put in people's cheeks so that if they're not able to swallow, they can still absorb the medications. So that's sort of it generally. Um, okay, you mentioned the natural the travel motors work. 
the mm-hmm. travel metaphor that seem the the travel metaphors that seem to show up. Yeah, sometimes in the last weeks or so, people start talking about having to go somewhere. We we do hear these travel metaphors a lot. My father talked about having to get on a ship. And people talk about, well, I have to pack my bags. I have to get ready to go. They're coming for me. Sometimes they start seeing people in the room that we're not seeing. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes they see their mothers. And they feel that they are being guided, that these people are coming to help them. Usually they're people that have already died. And so this is fairly common, too, that, that people start having visions or some people think they're hallucinations, but they are there. And usually they're very comforting. But the travel metaphor is, metaphor is very common. People, usually in the last few days, they may even have a period where they get agitated because um, they feel a sense of urgency. They feel that they're going and they feel that they have to get ready. Uh, so that is something we hear a lot, too. Yeah. You, you also mentioned um, recently, Katie, that people with dementia, sometimes they'll have moments of real clarity, a surge of yeah. energy. Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, I had a patient last week, and she had had trouble talking for a while, making any sense of her words. But about a week before she died, she said to her son, because I love you, I have to tell you that I need to go. Mm -hmm. She said it as clear as day to her son, I need to go, and I have to tell you this because I love you. Wow. And so sometimes people with Alzheimer's or dementia who haven't really been able to communicate um, verbally or able to have a moment of clarity or some moments of clarity where they're able just to say things very clearly. And this is, this is just a gift to the families and something that is really amazing when this happens. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, I've been involved with um, several deaths and you know the the journey has just been amazing at the end when my dad died i actually felt his energy run up my arm mm. and i was just electric wow. just electric and i was like yelling at my brother touch him touch him you know and my brother didn't feel anything <laughs> but my dad and i were just so connected or when my my mom died i like i said i was out of town cuz she told me i wasn't going to be there and that i couldn't oh. be there that she needed the fa- and she came to me in dreams. Um, and yeah. some people might think that that's bizarre, but that's what happens with me. Yeah. And um, she said, you're not going to be there. I, I need them to experience the death process. And they won't if you're there because you'll do everything because that's who you are. <laughs> and so, um, so lo and behold, here I have two speaking engagements in Arizona. My family is thinking I'm having a nervous breakdown because I'm always the one there. And plus, they're a little scared to be there on their own. And my two brothers and, you know, all of their um, families were there. And and yet there's my my daughter who's kind of running the show because my brothers really didn't step up. Um, which was fine, but they were all packed into the room. But what I didn't expect, and I, I think I really want to share this with people and, and hope you'll share it with others, was I was prepared to just call in and get updates. And my mm-hmm. daughter um, had did, did FaceTime. So I was at um, sitting in the airport in baggage claim doing FaceTime, wow. saying goodbye to my mom again because they thought she was going to go. Oh, wow. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was able to do last rites. I was able to 
guide my family when my mom um, needed some warm blankets or when she needed ice chips or when they needed uh-huh. to go ask for um, washcloths to cool her down or whatever it might be. Yeah. I could I could still assist them in uh-huh. seeing some of those changes, but allowing them to physically do it. And I don't, I mean, I really don't feel like I missed out on anything. You know, I was uh-huh. really part of it. I could um, put my brother in line when he was out of whack and no one else would do it and was uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, via video uh-huh. um, and still still be part of the process. So, you know, there's lots of ways to engage in terms of, of yes. the dying process. Yeah, FaceTime and, and Skype are wonderful now that we have that, the ability yep. to do that. Yeah, it was yeah. really, really amazing. And I, I just, um, mm-hmm. I not mean to get us off track, but I just think, you know, my next question is what is a good death and, and what can we do to, to make that happen? And I wanted to throw that in there because to me that was a, a good death you know my mom had what she wanted you know mm-hmm. she really lined it up ahead of time there <laughs> you know, and... well I think that's where hospice comes in because one of the first things I ask my patients what are your goals what are your hopes what are your wishes for the time you have left um, when it comes to the moment of dying most people say when they're asked um, that they want to die at home surrounded by loved ones and and that's important but they're but, but I also think about the time leading up to the death, mm-hmm. this, this precious time that, that they have left. How do you want to use this time? And so to me, that's part of having a good, a good death, too, is having that quality of time. If you do have, you know, if you do have a, a, a disease where you have this time and you know you're going to die, how do you want to use this time? Mm-hmm. So I think it is important to explore people's goals and wishes. Um, I think, you know, when people write out their advanced directives and they, they they write what their wishes are if, if they're in these different situations. I think those need to be honored. So that's a part of it too, is, is that, you know, honoring what they have expressed ahead of time um, so that they can live their life on their own terms as much as possible and be where they want to be and die the way they want to die. And of course that takes communication ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, the, um, Katie had mentioned the advanced directive and um, having a healthcare representative to make sure that the directive is followed is is really valuable. Uh, really, my, the the moment my dad was put on hospice, we sat in a circle and filled out the advanced directive. And the good part was, because all of us were filling one out for ourselves, it wasn't like my father was being grilled. Now, what do you want? What do you mm-hmm. want? You know, what choices do you want? He, he, we all discussed it. It allowed us to have a discussion. And so, um, so his wishes were followed and we all felt really good with it. And we all knew what his wishes were because we were all sitting in that circle. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, so we knew exactly, we'd shared that information, which Katie, you've mentioned sometimes people make these decisions. They fill out an advanced directive like my father-in-law, but didn't share it with his second wife. And so mm-hmm. his wishes weren't followed, and and he didn't have a. I would say he did not have a good death, but um, uh, because she was doing a forced feeding too, when he kept saying, "I don't want it," and all those things. So, um, but they were living abroad, and we really couldn't do anything. But um, so I think the the sooner we all make kind of talk about it with each other, the better. Don't mm-hmm. you, Katie? That yeah, well, I think communication is really the key. 
Um, I think the more people you can tell, the better. Yeah. <laughs> Just put it out there. I don't. <laughs> well, actually, it's interesting. I had this conversation with my mother this morning. She's 93, and I'm her care partner. And um, she just was in the hospital last week with pneumonia and sepsis. So she came home and kind of had a different, wearing a different, you know, she's saying, I'm, I'm ready to go. And, and so we've been talking about um, maybe doing palliative care now instead of going to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so we had that discussion this morning. So um, uh I'm in right in the thick of it right now. With yeah. my mom. Again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Different situation, but a lot of similar a lot of similar uh things happening again. Yeah. Yeah. But it's great, you know, uh since we've been writing this book, she's been in on it and we've been talking with her. So she I think we feel we wouldn't I, the conversation I had with my mom this morning, I wouldn't have been able to have before my dad died. Okay. But now that we've gone through it his death together and working on our book and talking about it a lot. Now we can. And, you know, so what a blessing. Good. So now, you know, yeah. I mean, really, yes, it, is. What it a, is. What a blessing. Cause it is, I, I don't think there's anything worse than not knowing what somebody wants, you know, and if you yes, wait too yes, late, yes. it's like, do they want to be cremated or do they want this? Do they want that? And all of a sudden, Families look at each other, you know, with these blank stares at one another going, oh, my God, I, I don't know. I, we didn't we didn't talk about that. Now you're you're making these big decisions or I, I know with my um, family, uh, when we did um, wills and healthcare directives, because my folks are like, ah, we don't have that much. It's not. And I'm like, no, you need to get this stuff in order. And then my husband and I did it at the same time to kind of take some of the scariness out of it. And, um, mm-hmm. and that made it easier. But then, you know, then my husband and I had to have a conversation with, with our daughter and she did not like the idea that I wanted to be cremated. And she's like, I don't want mm. you, I don't want you burnt, you know? And then I would joke with her. I said, let me be small once in my life. Come on, just <laughs> go with it, go with it, I love that. <laughs> you know, and, and throw me to the wind. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, and so we, we had this kind of fun, humorous conversation about it and she's still uncomfortable with it um but I know she'll do it and and I and I think she she understands it more now um on on many Mm -hmm. different levels where versus being just forced to make that decision you know yeah now Lori she has the time she has the time to process it get ready you gave her that gift I sure hope so preparing (laughs) yeah by preparing for our deaths and putting everything in writing and and we're giving a gift to our children so they don't have to go through that they don't have to go through wondering what we would want um it really is a gift to the people that we're leaving to, to really prepare as much as we can well and you know I really encourage kids to get involved in this too Mm -hmm. I mean Mm-hmm. Kids right. should have powers Absolutely. of attorney and healthcare directives and things. And, and, you know, I've stated this on the show many times where, you know, I've got friends who have had kids who have gotten in accidents or, or very sick and they can't communicate mm-hmm. with the doctor, but they're paying the bill, you know, because they mm-hmm. don't, because they don't have a piece of paper. And, yeah, and, right. and so it, it's just good business. It's good. It's good living business to take care of these things. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're all so conscious of running our lives the way that we want. And yet, why would we leave one of the most important pieces go of having some control in saying that? 
Mm-hmm. You know, it, when when we yep. look at it like that, it really just doesn't make any sense at all. Mm-hmm. It's it's like my mom. We went to a bookstore a couple of weeks ago, and she bought this book that just was published in 2016. It's uh it's a new edition of Cicero's How to Grow Old. Mm-hmm. And she's just been reading that like a Bible every night. She's reading through it. And she told me, I want to get copies for you and the children and her two remaining friends, you know, who are out there in the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's, um, it, it, it's, a, it, and they're really, you know, practical things, how to, how to progress through life and, and, and accept yourself at each stage that you're at. So, and it's written in one side in the, I guess it's Greek or Roman, <laughs> and on the other in uh, a really easy to read English. So mm-hmm. I recommend that book. <laughs> yeah, it's it's important, a very important stuff. I remember um, one of our um, gals in the dementia chats that I do. Um, she um, decided that she was going to, you know, tell everybody, and and for like three months, you know, she met with everybody. And prepared for yeah. the dying process and wanted to make sure that yeah. everybody knew and that they could um, reminisce and say their last goodbyes. And it's just like, how beautiful right. is that, you know, to to be able to yeah. to do that and coordinate yeah. that. Um, I, I have a patient now. She has three children and, you know, she's younger. She's, she's um, you know, she, she has cancer, but she has... She's taking a trip with each of her kids individually. She's taking a road trip with each of them um, before she dies. And I just thought it was such a wonderful idea just to take a road trip and mm-hmm. go somewhere together alone and just have this time that she's spending with each of her kids. Yep, yep. Or or I'll, I'll use the example with my dad. We knew that he wouldn't make it to their 50th anniversary, so we had a 49-and-a-half-year mm-hmm. Um, anniversary party and they and they renewed their vows and my mom with dementia Mm. even though she couldn't pick out her clothes or tell you what the weather was like she Mm -hmm. knew exactly Mm -hmm. what was going on you know in that moment and it was just a beautiful beautiful moment to to have and you know we pulled it off in two weeks and we had two like 250 Mm. people show up you know, and wow. it was, mm-hmm. um, it was just gorgeous. Wonderful. Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, we can have a good death. We can communicate and we can fill out our advanced directives and have a conversation and not, not feel, um, not be in denial, not be mm-hmm. ashamed, not, not, you know, just get rid of all of that stuff and just have an honest talk mm-hmm. of, how would you like to exit? You know, what would yeah. You like and Lori, I think with? it actually makes life richer when mm-hmm. you when you do all those things. You just have less anxiety and fear. It's not just they're lurking in the background. And I think we live richer. We live richer lives when we do that. It's it's really about living. You know, living while we're dying, or um, you know, living with dying because death is always there. I mean, it's always there, mm-hmm. circling around us. And so if we embrace it. Um, something that inevitable and planned for I think we live, we live better. <laughs> yeah. One thing I'd like, yeah. like to ask um, Katie, cause I, I've just found it to be such a huge gift to be able to be with somebody when they die. Um, I, I know mm-hmm, it's not, it I know it's not mm-hmm. everybody's cup of tea, but I think a lot of it, it, it's not their cup <laughs> of tea because it's scary 
and they've never done mm-hmm. it um, for the most yeah. part. But I, I you know, I, I've I've had the honor of being with several different people, and each was so different, but so beautiful, and just it really comforted me to be able to be there um, mm-hmm. with them. And what do you find with with families that you work with there? And then Jan, I want to ask you about that as well. Well, I think I think it's a very sacred ta- time, and I know like I've been at births too, and births are just like awe inspiring. Mm-hmm. And I really think it's it's similar to when someone's dying; it's awe inspiring. And you know, there's a transition that happens, and of course, we all have our different spiritual beliefs. But I just feel this energy has left this body. And it's just a moment that is just like time stops. And mm-hmm. I try to encourage families to, to view it as a sacred, um, a sacred event, not just a physical death. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, and create a, a sacred space around the dying if they can or if they want to, where, with music or candles or prayer. or and, and to spend some time with the body afterwards, not immediately have the mortuary come and pick up the body, but, you know, do a ritual bathing dressing and have that time to say goodbye and again not everyone wants to do this and that's fine it's very mm-hmm. individual but I, I just feel there's a it's just a profound moment and being being at a death I always feel a sense of gratitude like like that I was able to be there and um it's just the, the rest of the day I always feel like I'm in an altered state like I'm, I feel like I'm kind of floating around and it's something that that, you know, you would understand if you were at a death. I know you do, but it, it's, it's hard to explain. It's, it's hard to explain unless you've been, been at one. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, a, friend, a friend of mine told me that Katie was at the death of his father, and she told him to, he said, this is the most affecting thing she told. You, you Katie, you told um, our friend that, that, that take the time to be with his dad after, you know, after he had died. Spend the time, sit with him, because as soon as someone, you know, the funeral home comes, he becomes, he, I think this is what he said, a commodity. And before that, he's still part of the family and he's still, and, and, and take the time to allow yourself to, you know, embrace that. And he said that made all the difference for him. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. My, my, my experience with my dad, sort of like what you said, Lori, the electrical charge up your arm. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, Katie and I were in the room and, my dad loved this song, Take Him Home from Les Mis, and um, he played it all the time. So I put it on, and we'd done a two-set in his mouth to make sure his mouth was moist and, you know, all the comfort things. And, and we walked out of the room, and there was this – I had a baby monitor. And suddenly over the monitor, there was this crackling, like static, static, static. And Katie turned to me and said, he's gone. And, you know, we went back in, and, and there he was, and he was – his uh, that we'd lift. I I feel like we heard his essence going, mm-hmm. and um, we went back in, and he looked really relaxed. His whole body was relaxed, and it was uh, it was a great moment. And just just like you um, you know, we spent time with him and put his hat on. His he was a military. He had been a lifelong you know a pilot, and um, so we dressed him up and took the time to you know looking at how beautiful he was and, and also revel in that moment. Mm-hmm. So it was great. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, why don't we talk about um, five easy to do tips for taking care of yourself as a, as a caregiver 
And I'm not sure which one of you wants to take that. I'll, I'll start with it. You could Sorry, be on. Yeah. <laughs> You're in it. You were in it. I'm in the thick of it. Well, you know, here's what I advise everybody. I, I'm kind of a scattered person, and, and I can spin out of control pretty, you know, frantically, uh, you know, trying to do 10 things at once, starting to load the, you know, washer and forgetting that I to turn it on and put something on the stove and forget that. But but the um, the thing that has helped me with both my dad and now my mom is that I keep a notebook and I write down every phone call I've every every call that has has involved my mom mm-hmm. to start out with. You know, doctors when they called, when an appointment is, when I need to call back, when they're going to call back, who's going to come visit, all those things. So keeping that kind of uh, uh, a notebook, but also in the notebook. Um, and this comes into, this is the really, really, really important thing that everybody, it's hard for us all to do, but it's the list of things when people say, what can I do to help? Make a list in this notebook of, of so you can flip it open and say, and put their name next to it. Oh, well, you know what? I really could use someone to sit with my mom while I go to this appointment I have to go to, or I really, boy, it'd be great if you could pick up the medicine, or I haven't been able to mow the lawn, or, you know, all those things that, or my car's out of gas, if I gave you money, would you go, would you, could you just fill up the tank because I have to take my mom later today, and whatever it is, if you have that list, then, then, um, then it's a specific, and the people say, oh, I can do that. Or you can give them three options and they'll pick one. And, and it really, because everybody wants to help, but you never know what to tell them. You, mostly you, bra- you know, brave it out. You go, oh, I'm fine. We're good. Thanks mm-hmm. for offering. But um, put, that, put their name down and put their phone number next to their name. You know, those are all, the, the list has been helpful for me. Um, uh, Katie, what other things have we we've talked no, I, about? I think, uh, I think that people, the biggest thing I, I see is that people do not get help and support soon enough they feel they have to do it all themselves and as as i've heard you say Lori, we we this is a community it takes all of us it 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 takes all of us reaching out all of us are going to need help at times and all of us are going to be able to give help at times and you know i tell my patients now it's your turn some days could be my turn i try to normalize again that we all are going to need help at some point and that's why we're here and so i i really i think that people wait far too long to get help and I think people get in hospice far too late. And I, I feel like turning it from, you mentioned turning it from crisis to caring. I really like that, Lori. Mm-hmm. Um, that don't wait till there's a crisis. Let's, let's, start, let, let's start caring for each other sooner and letting people help us. We don't have to do it all on our own. And, and I see that all the time. You know, when I admit a patient, here's this wife or husband struggling for years and finally they have some help with us and it's such a huge relief, but I wonder why they couldn't get help earlier and not necessarily from hospice, but from, you know, groups in the community or just friends who offer, um, like Yana said, write a list of things you need help with. And when someone offers, say, okay, I have this list because people, I find people really do want to help. They, they just need a little direction. Um, they probably don't, don't want to interfere. So, um, you know, we, we tend not to tell them we need help because we don't, you know, they think they're interfering. We think that we're, you know, being a burden. 
And I think we just have to kind of let go of some of this uh, in our culture and, and reach out more. Yeah. Also, I would say a, a, a real key for, for self-care is um, uh, ta- take time. Mm-hmm. Take time to eat. <laughs> you know, just because standing in front of the refrigerator and grabbing all the carbohydrates or all the whatever it is, or in the cupboard, or, is not, you do have that extra 15 minutes to sit down and actually make good choices for yourself. I, I gained a whole lot of weight when I was taking care of my dad, just because I, I got, like I said, I got myself into a frenzy of trying to add their needs to my very full schedule already. Mm-hmm. And um, in my own life with work and my own family. And, um, and I just would, I, I was, uh, I, the way I found the extra time was to take it from everything that made me healthy and happy. So I would, um, I used to go for a walk in the morning with my friend. I cut the walk out because that gave me an extra hour. I did all these things that didn't make anything better for anybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I also, you know, I also made a list of what my parents' needs were, and they weren't that many. They were sit down and spend some time with them, really. Mm -hmm. You know, don't frantically try to shove the right pills and the right food and the right everything at at them. Just sit down and, and listen and and t- let them know you're there for them. Yeah. So, and in, in our book, in our book, Laura, we have a whole chapter on taking time for yourself. And I think we have a lot of really good self-care advice. And I think like Yana said, just taking time, just sitting and being present with your loved ones, um, rather than feeling like you always have to be doing something. I think the gift of our presence sometimes is more important than doing. And I think that yeah, I think we, we the important one really important piece of advice is just taking time and um, oh, also for you ourselves know, Katie, and for our right. loved ones. Yeah, but Katie has this little this thing that she does that I've observed her do with my both my parents and many people. When she goes to visit somebody, she pulls up a chair right next to them, mm-hmm. you know, really close to them. And if there's not a chair, she'll sit on their walker there's not a walker she'll kneel beside their chair um sometimes she's laid in bed with them you know she she lets them she'll kick off her shoes and get in bed and say how are you doing (laughs) um and that not everybody everybody (laughs) not everybody yes (laughs) (laughs) i do have all my faces yeah (laughs) but i guess i guess i've watched that and if i were to take one you know offer anybody one tip that's what i would say is, has really changed my life. If I just, when I go in to see my mother each day and she lives with me, I, I make sure I don't stand in the doorway. I don't stand above her. Uh, you know, she's able to get around, but I pull up a chair and I pull it close to her. Mm-hmm. So it looks like we're going to have a nice chat and I'm going to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. I have to <laughs> share a story because this, uh, this was really life changing for me and it was, uh, a hospice uh, woman who who gave me this advice, but I had my uncle came to me in a dream, and he um, he basically said it's time for Kay to go, you know, and he was there with his arms open and his brilliant smile and his eyes glistening, and said you need to go tell Kay I'm here, it's time. And my my aunt was in the hospital um, dying of cancer and was in hospice, and I 
went down to visit with her and I thought, I just didn't know how to talk to her because she was really religious and I thought she would think that I'm crazy because Uncle Chuck's Mm. ghost came to see me, (laughs) you know. And so I talked about everybody and and everyone um, and what was going on. But before I walked in the door, she said, you know, she's don't expect anything from her. Don't expect her to squeeze Mm. her hand, um, your hand open her eyes, talk to you. Chances of that is very slim, but just know she will take in everything that you have to say or that you do. Uh She will take it all in and she will know. So you just go in and and say what you need to say and do what you need to do um, so that you have closure. So I'm yapping away, um, talking about the family, and then finally I said, okay, Auntie Kay, I'm going to tell you why I'm really here. And this whole time I'm sitting there and I'm holding her hand and she's just sleeping. And, um, Mm -hmm. I, you know, and then I told her that Uncle Chuck came and he was brilliant and I didn't even realize it was a dream because it was so real. And he looks so wonderful and he's so happy and his arms are wide open and he's telling you it's time and that he's here for you now and it's time for you to cross over. And all of a sudden, she squeezes my hand. Her eyes pop open. She looks at the ceiling. She gets this brilliant smile on her face. The whole room got chilly. And yet, my aunt was so peaceful looking up at the ceiling. And I know dang well she saw Uncle Chuck. And um, and then she squeezed my hand, and her eyes shut. But the smile remained on her face. And I remember just sitting wow. sitting with her yeah. for about another 20 minutes, and then I decided to leave. And about two hours mm-hmm. later, I got the call. She passed. And, wow. and it was what like... What a good gift you gave her. Oh, and what a gift yeah. she gave me to be part of that, you know, yeah. um, oh, and both yeah. of them, you know, Uncle Chuck and Annie Kay. And, you know, family was upset that they, you know, why didn't dad come to us? And I said, you couldn't have, you weren't in, in the mind frame to deal with it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it was years later, they said, you're right. We couldn't have dealt with mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And, and thank you. But it, it, but it took quite yeah. a while for that because they were very, yeah. very upset originally. But I thought that they needed to hear mm-hmm. the story too. Yeah, and, um, definitely. But it was just such a wow. beautiful beautiful story beautiful. and and just a connection oh. that you can't even describe you just can't even describe oh. it you know but to to sit back and think i you know and and maybe i'm wrong but i but i felt like i helped her pass you know i i did yeah, what i was I called so. on and um yeah and so it it's just a privilege and an honor you know to be to be part of that mm-hmm. so um you know don't um I guess my my thought to people is, look for the beauty in it, and you'll find it, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's it definitely is there. It definitely is yeah. there. Katie, you Katie, you said you ask you tell your um, family to write down what the patients are saying, right? Well, yeah, because there's some wonderful things that come out in the final days or hours, even that people say such remarkable things, or they might talk about what they're seeing. And I just, you know, as part of the notebook, um, I, I just sometimes I advise people to, to journal, to, to write down some of the experiences because there can be such precious, funny, all kinds of things that can, can come out in the in the final weeks or days. And I, I, I just, I think it's it's a 
it's great to have that to look back on. Yeah. It was funny. The day before dad died, he kept telling me he, um, he really missed his daddy. And I'd never heard him call his father daddy. He had always called him pop, but I had been sleeping on, on the floor of his room. And um, the night before he died, he and his father, pop, my they were having a conversation together. Of course, I didn't hear the other half, but I heard his half. And they were laughing and having a great time. And he was saying, I knew you'd say that. I knew you'd say that. And uh, so that, for a couple, and two weeks before that, my father, there was someone standing over my dad's left shoulder that he would lean and whisper to and then listen and then laugh or then cover his mouth because he didn't want us to see what he was saying to this person and just before he died he asked me if he was still there and I said yes he is so that's good so <laughs> so those are all remarkable isn't it great that you can be there and mm-hmm. kind of amazing the wonder yeah. of what mystery of life I guess yeah yes the mystery of life and death that's for sure yeah. now people can get a hold of you through your website which is livingwithdying.com or mm-hmm. your right. Facebook uh, page, which is the same name, Living With Dying um, book. If you put that in, you'll go right to their Facebook page. Or Twitter is um, twitter.com forward slash guide for care. And for is spelled out F-O-R, guide for care. Um, well, this has just been a really amazing conversation. Um, Yana, is there anything else that you would like to add? Um, you mean about the general? Uh, yep. Um, anything at all? I guess I would. <laughs> well, I guess I would. I, I would hope that um, everybody gets to have an experience like I've had with, um, uh, uh, like Katie. So sometimes it's good to go and have someone else be there with you to help you get through that experience. So I guess that's my my addition. Don't be afraid to share um, your needs and that ask for friends to share your journey with you. So great. Um, that would be my addition. Okay. Um, Katie, how about you? Any, any last words? Um, I think just like Yana said, um, ask for support earlier rather than later. And that, that goes with getting on hospice earlier rather than later. Cause most of my families wish they had had hospice sooner. Mm-hmm. You can talk to your doctor about it. If you feel that you're not getting anywhere with your doctor, you can call your local hospice directly. And um, I go out and make visits all the time just to talk to people about hospice. We, mm-hmm. we don't need a doctor's order just to, just to talk about hospice. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think just um, seeking help and support would be my last word of advice. Wonderful. Well, thank you, too, again for... Um, Thank you, Lori. Putting this wonderful book together. Again, I, you will yeah. not be disappointed if you pick this book up, Living with Dying. It is broken down very easily. There is actually one section on here, dementia um, at the end of life. But, you know, so much of the death process is universal. And so yeah. it it, yep. it doesn't, you know, and it's for all ages. We should really be mm-hmm. having these conversations. And there's great resources in here. So, um, I would highly encourage you to to go out and, and pick up this book, Living With Dying. Um, in wrapping up here, again, I just want to um, give a shout out to all of those that are going on our dementia-friendly cruise and symposium November 11th through the 18th. We still have some openings in our group. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. 
We will be having uh, four people with dementia um, as speakers, along with a music therapist and Cindy Lazinski, who is um, working on a dementia-friendly community in Colorado, as well as myself. Um, all of our shows here, too, on Alive and Social, I should say, are archived. And we've been doing this for six years. So if there's anything that you um, are interested in, chances are we've covered the conversation. I also want to just give a plug for the um, quality aging survey that is now up and running. And you can go to our blog and get information on that. Um, it's, uh, it's a wonderful survey that's being done by the University of Minnesota, a gal there, uh, for her thesis. And it's a prime time with our healthcare being in such a conbobbled state to let your opinions be known on what you are looking for and what you feel quality is in, uh, in the healthcare arena. Other than that, I'm going to go ahead and let you go. And, um, Wish you all a wonderful week, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families, too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.